People have been predicting the exact date and time that Jesus is coming back ever since he left. In fact, uh, looking up at the uh, uh, Wikipedia, which is always accurate, uh, this is a list of dates. Are you ready for this? Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but at least all these dates people have predicted in times past of when they thought Jesus was coming back. All right? So there you go. Uh, in fact, there was one guy who came out with a book in 1988. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Sold 3 million copies. Brother was rolling in it. Jesus obviously didn't come back. So he thought, well, we'll just roll it back and say that, nope, just kidding, he's coming back in 1989. Right? Spoiler, it did not sell as many copies. All right? Um, now, now, the next prediction is not until 2019. So we can breathe. Okay, we've got a year or some change to just kind of chill out. Okay, he's not coming back for at least for a little while, according to these knuckleheads. Now, Jesus himself, when, right before he was going to ascend to go back up to the Father, he said these words when the apostles asked him. He said, Lord, is the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom, which is part of his, his final return, the day of the Lord that's coming. And you know what Jesus said back to them? He said, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Jesus looked at his disciples. He said, I am coming back in the year of Nunya, right? Nunya business, right? He said, in fact, he said, I don't even know when, he said earlier in, in the Gospels, I don't even know when I'm coming back. This is only for the Father to know. And what we need to understand is, and, and to understand is we're going to get into the book of Revelation today. Revelation is not just a code for us to decipher exact dates and times and peoples and nations, and we, well, we try to do this, right? Because this book is crazy. I mean, here's just some, some pictures based on what people have seen, just kind of what's depicted in the book of Revelation. And a lot of times what we do is we try to find exact, you know, well, that horn represents Russia, okay? And the Antichrist, well, that was Obama. Or no, 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 that's Trump. Or, or whichever president you don't like. My opinion, driving home from Anchorage yesterday, I was actually driving behind the Antichrist who decided that on dry roads, he was still only going to go 45 miles an hour the entire way, all right? So I found him. There he is. He drives a... No, we won't. Um, There's this level of mystery in the book of Revelation that we're not going to demystify. And scholars who have been looking into this, who've been studying this, unpacking this for years, and in 35 minutes, we're just not going to come to a solution. But I want to show you briefly here just a couple of different ways that people look at the book of Revelation to understand what we're up against. There's, there's those who have what we call an idealist point of view, which is basically just, well, Revelation, it's nothing literal. It's just all these kind of timeless principles, these morals for us to know and to learn. And it's just kind of talking about good and evil in general. Now, that's one extreme, and I don't think that's the, 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 the right answer. There's also the historicist who says that, that Revelation is just this detailed map of history, and it is our job to figure out which nations over the course of time represented which horn and which beast and which person represented this and that, and that's the other extreme. Then we have those who it's called the preterist, and that's basically saying, for the most part, these events were only about what was happening in the time that it was written. So that first century after Jesus left. And they're kind of all these, these times and dates about Rome and Nero and the fall of Israel and 70 AD and all these things. It has nothing to do with the future. It was just events back then. Or there's the futurist who says, no, it was only about events to come. And it wasn't talking about anything at that time. This is all going to be fulfilled later. Now I will tell you my view. It is the theological term, mm, okay. <laughs> Pastor Larry said it this way, he said, I'm a pan-millennialist, 
which means it will all pan out, right? That's all we know, is that it's going to happen, um, and it's probably, it's probably a blend of all four to some degree. And what we need to understand this morning, though, is what John says in, in the third verse of the book. He says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So here's what we know. There's a message here that we're given. And blessed is the one who reads it. I guess this morning that'll be me. Blessed, is those, blessed are those who listen to it. And then most importantly, those who obey it. So there are some things here that we need to know and that we need to act on that are going to change the way we live. But we need to make sure that we major on those majors and not get hung up on the details. So the book of Revelation. The Apostle John most likely is the one who writes it. He dresses himself as John. Most of us believe that was the one that was Jesus' one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Written in 95 AD is kind of a conservative estimate. Um, that was probably the last book of the Bible that was actually written. He wrote it to these seven churches, and we'll talk about this. This is important. He wrote to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he wrote it as he was exiled because of his faith. He was persecuted, boiled alive in oil, survived that somehow, and was exiled to the island of Patmos. And this is where he wrote this letter. Now, you look at this map here. John is off. You see that little pink box on the left? It shows Patmos was a little island off the coast of Turkey. And these seven churches were all along this road system, people that John interacted with. Some say he was actually an elder or a pastor over those churches. And he's going to send this letter, and it will be read along the road. See, this is, this is back then. They couldn't just tweet out a link, and everyone could just download it and read these words. So they were passed along as people traveled along this, this road. Now, how did John receive the information that he's about to impart from us? Well, this is where we get the title of the book. It's called Revelation, because the Greek word there, apocalypsis, it means an unveiling or a revealing. That these, these words, these images, the, the person of Jesus, it was unveiled to John. He was shown to John in some sort of a vision. And he's told to write down what it is that he sees, what is to come. And in fact, the first verse, depending on how you translate it, it says that it's the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus. We're going to see in chapter 1, he shows himself to John, his glorified state. And it's the revelation from Jesus. It's Jesus who shows John, this is what's to come. This is what I want you to tell people. This is what we know as apocalyptic literature based on that Greek word. And and here's something we need to understand. At this time, this kind of literature was very common. And, And after, remember the Old Testament, there was this period, we talked about these 400 years of silence. Where there, where there was no prophecy from God. And so what people would do is they'd come up with these ideas, borrowing from images of the Old Testament and say, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's all going to end. This is how God's going to fulfill his prophecies. And so up until this time, this first century, these kind of writings were very popular. And what God does here, he says, I'm going to tell you what's up. And Jesus himself reveals God's perspective on Jesus' return, on the true prophecy. And this one stands out amongst all those other jokers, all those other pretenders to say this is what's actually going to take place. We have to understand the images that John's audience is reading here have been very familiar to them. He's drawing almost every image has its place in the Old Testament or when Jesus talked in Matthew 24. These are, these are not just things John's making out of, out of thin air. As they're revealed to him, he's calling back to these words in the Old Testament. And they would have understood what he was saying. So, for example, think about today. If I show you this image, 
Okay? And today I'm going to speak on the most controversial book of the Bible. I'm also going to get into politics. All right? This is good job security for Justin. Now, if you look at this image, what do you see? You automatically, being a citizen of the United States, you know the majority of what's being shown up here, right? The elephant represents the what? The Republican. And the donkey, the Democrat. And what's going on? They're dressed in red, white, and blue, stars and stripes. That's the symbols of our nation's flag representing America. And they're boxing. Why? Because there's this controversy between the Democrats and the Republicans, the conservatives and the liberals. They see things from different points of view. Now, you and I, we see this, and we automatically know what this image is trying to depict. But imagine somebody 2,000 years from now looking back and going, what in the world is going on here, right? Why is a donkey boxing with an elephant? And they wouldn't know the symbols that you and I, in 2017, automatically sent a slide into that. And John's audience, as they're reading this book, they're automatically plugging in when he uses certain images. He talks about the beasts and the horns. They know that's a callback to Daniel and the nations that that, that Daniel was referring to, those world powers. Or when he sees the number seven, the seven is all up in this book. And they knew there was a symbol that the seven meant, it it was this idea of completion or perfection. And what John's about to show them meant the completion of all things. And that's why he keeps using the number seven. John's audience would have immediately been seeing the majority of these images and what he was referring to. So why? Last question, why did John write this book? Well, chapter one tells us the first reason is to show what's going to come next. And I'm so glad that he did. We know how this story ends. And it all revolves around Jesus coming back. The one thing we do know, we don't know when, we don't know exactly how, but we know Jesus is coming back. And what John tells his followers is he encourages them, and as you continue to follow Jesus, patiently wait and watch for his return and remain faithful to be witnesses of Jesus. That's what we do know. This book is all about Jesus. It's Revelation, just like the whole Bible. And in fact, the, the use of the word lamb, lamb of God, is used 25 times in this book. Almost every single chapter has a reference to the lamb of God, and we'll see that, its significance as we walk, walk um, through it. And what we see here in, in, in John chapter 1 is John gets this glimpse, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, he gets this glimpse of the person of Jesus. There's this fantastic image And he sees him. And and his response, he says in verse 17, When I saw him, when I saw Jesus in his glorified state, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died when he came the first time. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus is the one that's in charge of everything, both life and death. And then he says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are happening now and the things that will happen. And here, verse 19, is an outline for the rest of the book. So chapter 1 is what you've seen. You've seen the risen Jesus, him in his glorified state. Number 2, I'm going to show you what's happening right now in this church age. He's going to write to these seven churches. And then he says, here's what's going to happen next. The rest of the story, the rest of the book of Revelation, here's what's coming. The last things here on earth. And he's talking mainly about Christ's return. So we just looked at Christ glorified. But now number two, in Revelation 2 and 3, he's talking to some churches. And it's so important that we understand that John is writing this to seven actual churches. They had names, they have locations. And he's writing this letter to them. And we see these churches on this path here in modern-day Turkey. 
appropriate for our Thanksgiving weekend. Um, sorry, that was, that was rough. Um, seven letters to seven churches. And as he writes these letters, he says to each of them, he has, a different, he has different things to say to each church. Five of them, it's, it's primarily negative. He says, there's some good things about you, but there are some major warning signs that I need to give you. Some of them have fallen out of love with Jesus. Some of them are following this world and getting lured away by sexual immorality, by false teaching, that they are just a dead church. He says, one church, you look like you're alive, but you're actually dead. These five words of warning. Then there's these two churches. And he says to these two churches, he says, you're staying faithful. And even though you've been persecuted, even though you're suffering, you're staying faithful to Jesus and his message and following him. And what he says to each of them, he's making this comparison. You have these two choices. You can either compromise with the world, you can go the world's way, or you can stay faithful to Jesus. Which one are you going to choose? And I, and I wonder, man, if God wrote a letter to the church of Soldatna, if he wrote a letter today to Peninsula Grace, well, what would this letter look like? And are we the kind of people that are staying faithful to the message and work of Jesus, or do we look a lot like the world? And as he writes this letter, to the, at the end of each of these calls to the church, this is what he says to them. To him who conquers, or to him who overcomes, or to him who is victorious, depending on how you translate that word. He says there's a, a reward coming. And he links these seven different rewards for each of the churches, and he's linking them with what we'll see at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21 and 22, the eternal state when Jesus comes back, new heavens and new earth. So he says if you're, if you're faithful now... There's this reward coming for you. It will be worth it in the end. And it's so important for us to see this today, to understand the call to conquer. Now, we have some guys in this room who get excited about that. Conquer, war, I'm in, right? Like, let's do this. I got a bunch of weapons at home. I know my Alaskan brothers, right? We're ready for Armageddon. Seller is stocked. Bring on the apocalypse, right? And you're just ready to throw down. But what we're going to see this morning is the way that Jesus shows us that we're, we conquer, that we are victorious, is not the way that the world would see what it means to be, to be victorious. So let's look then at what will take place. What's going to take place after where we are currently today? Now I'm going to show you a timeline. Do not freak out. Okay, this is not, there are going to be some people up in this place, they're going to disagree with this. I'm not dogmatic about this. There are some things we know, kind of a general rollout from Revelation. Okay, I'm not dying on this rock. But what we see is eternity past and eternity future. God's always been there and he always will be there. And what we saw at the beginning is we know there was creation. And then man fell. Sin comes into the world. Yada, yada, yada. Jesus comes the first time. And he dies for that sin. And then he rises and he goes back up to heaven. And then what takes place and where we are right now in this story is this church. It's this time when God's calling out a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, one body in Christ as he's placing us into Christ Jesus. It's his people, his body. And then, and this is where it gets controversy, controversial, many believe that the rapture will come at the end of the church age, when the church, the believers, are snatched up to be with Jesus. And after this rapture, and this is kind of where we come into the story here in Revelation 4-5, conservative traditional views say that, that this, this throne room scene is happening in Revelations chapter 4 and 5. Again, no way to be dogmatic about it. And then the tribulation period, which is the most of the book of Revelation, is this period of tribulation, and we'll talk about it. It's not pretty. And then at the end of this tribulation, Jesus will come back that second time, riding on a white horse. 
And when he comes back the second time, he is going to establish what we call the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the millennial kingdom, where he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. It's culminated with what we call the great white throne of judgment. And this is where people will be judged according to their deeds, and those who did not follow Jesus will be thrown into the lake of fire. Then finally, ushering into the eternal state, which what, what life will look like forever and ever, is, is this new heavens and new earth that get recreated. All right? Now, I'm already re- ready for the emails that will be coming this week. Okay? But that's kind of an overview, and now we're going to kind of zoom in. So the first thing that happens here is this, this, this vision of what heaven looks like. John, it says, I, I was re- this was revealed to me, and I saw this. And this is this beautiful image. And if you know the Old Testament prophecies, he's actually calling back to Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, and they paint very similar pictures of what God's throne will look like. And it's this awesome scene where it's, he says he's on this throne, and it's surrounded by this glassy sea, and there's these angels with these eyeballs all over them, and wings, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then it says there's these 24 elders who are sitting on their thrones. Now, a lot of people uh, believe that this is a, a picture and why the, the raptures already happened is that these are believers and that the 12, it's 12 and 12, 12 representing the tw- 12 tribes of Israel, the other 12 representing the 12 disciples, uh, Jews and Gentiles together. There's no way to be dogmatic about that. And so that's why we would believe that, that this could be around the time when the rapture or the snatching up, what that word meant, occurs. But there are many who believe, no, that actually happens after the tribulation. I'm hoping for a pre-tribulation rapture, amen? We do not want to face that. Come on, Lord Jesus. Um, then what happens, and man, in Revelation 5, this is so cool, you guys. So this is, look at what happens, verse 1. And I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So there's this scroll. And this has these wax seals that were very common in the Roman Empire, meaning only certain people can open this. I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. So at the time in Rome, you had to have a certain level of authority to be able to break these seals and read the document. These, these scrolls often symbolize judgment. So in other words, he's saying, Who has authority to cast judgment on this on this earth? Who has the authority to open, to break these seals and read this scroll? And they look around and he says, he starts crying because there's no one there who can open it. But then in verse 5, and I love this, one of the elders says, stop weeping. You don't need to cry anymore. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne or the root of David, has won the victory. Who's that? It's Jesus. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the elders goes, there he is. Now, if someone pointed and said, here, come the, here comes the Lion of Judah. Here comes the, the heir to the throne. Who are you picturing? Who are you expecting to come around the corner? I'm picturing Aslan, right? The big lion, the studly lion comes waltzing in, ready to open this up. Or a king. I'm ready for this king. Like I'm thinking like King Leonidas from 300, right? With the big shiny teeth. And he's got muscles in places you didn't even know you could have muscles. And he's just walking in. He's got this big army coming up after him. I will open the scroll. But when he looks, who does he see coming? It's not Leonidas and it's not Aslan. Verse 6. And I saw a lamb that looked as though it had been slaughtered. What does he see? He sees a lamb. And can you imagine what a lamb looks like that looks like it has already been slaughtered? But here's this lamb that's living. It's a lamb that has died, but it's come back to life. This is the victorious Jesus. You see, 
Jesus alone, the slain lamb alone, is the one who has the ability to bring justice to this earth. And victory was actually won the first time Jesus came. What did he come to do? How did he overcome his enemies? Not by a military conquest, but by dying for them. By laying his life down for the very ones that crucified him. But because he didn't stay dead, because he resurrected, his death was not the end. It was actually his enthronement. This is the way Jesus conquered evil. So how do the churches, how do the seven churches God wrote to, how do we today find victory? How do we conquer? It's not military battle. It's by loving our enemies and laying our lives down for others and trusting in the Lamb's finished work. The battle over sin and death, listen to me, the battle over sin and death is already over. Jesus conquered it at the cross. And the rest of Revelation is just the inevitable outworking of Jesus' finished work on the cross. So the slain lamb, he opens the seals. And what we see next is this time of tribulation. Now, there are scholars who are smarter than me who have been debating this for years. And depending on your view, there are many who would say this time period of tribulation is this literal seven-year period. And if you go back and read Daniel, it really helps unpack this. And this is what they call Daniel's 70th week. And he, un- he unpacks what this time of tribulation looked like. And most uh, traditional scholars say that this happens after the church has been raptured and before the thousand-year reign begins. And no matter what, no matter how this plays out, what we do know is that this is a pouring out of God's judgment on the world. It is not a pretty time. Not a pretty time. He's warning of what is to come when Jesus comes back, and he's giving time for people to repent, to change their minds, to turn to Jesus, the slain lamb. But spoiler alert, most people do not turn to Jesus. And so there's these three sets of judgments that we see, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Remember how we said the word seven is complete or perfect. So here's God's complete and perfect judgment on a world that has turned its back on him. And some see these, these sevens as, as three kind of linear events. One happens, the other one happens, the next one happens, or a blend of both. Some see it like those little Russian nesting dolls where they're actually just kind of three laps around the same course between when Jesus comes the first time and Jesus comes back the second time. And again, not here to be dogmatic about that. But, but here's what we do know, is that through all these crazy scenes, we have the two witnesses, the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, 666, 144,000. Sorry, Bill. Sorry, George. We're not going to be able to get into all that here this morning. Uh, but at the end of all of it, what we see is this final battle of good and evil. And on the plains of Armageddon, there's this battle that occurs between good and evil. And we see it depicted as Babylon, the great prostitute, it calls her, and Jesus. Now, what's Babylon? Babylon's a reference all the way back to the beginning of our story in Genesis 11. Remember the Tower of Babel? That was built at Babylon. This is where it started. And these people building a tower were building a tower for what? For their own namesake. They said, we want to show the world how great we are, so we're going to build this awesome tower up to the heavens. This is about us. And ever since then, there's this been this playing out of Babel, of Babylon, these nations that rise, and when they do, because they're made up of sinners, these sinners go their own way. And so we saw that in Egypt, we saw that with Assyria, we saw that with Babylon, we saw that with Greece, we saw that with Rome, we see that today in the country we live in. This is where nations go 
because of the bent of evil. In fact, Israel itself becomes a Babylon of sorts as they reject their God and look to themselves in pride. And what he's saying here is this battle is going to come, and those who have been disobedient and rebellious will be laid low by the powerful, authoritative hand of Jesus. Now, how much of this is literal? How much of this is figurative? It's above my pay grade. What we know is that Jesus wins. And in Revelation 19, when he comes back, Jesus comes back, and the scene that, that occurs there is what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we believe this is a time for believers that gather around Jesus. Their robes are washed white in his blood, and they feast on him. We're eating lamb, right? The lamb of God. We, he is our sustenance. And we celebrate the coming back of Jesus. We look forward to this day. It will be a beautiful day when we, we, we are reunited with Jesus. For the rest of this world, this will not be a good day. In Revelation 19, you read these words. It says, that I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. What Jesus is about to do is right and good. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Now wait a second. The battle has not occurred yet. Why does he already have a bloody robe? Well, you follow the breadcrumbs. This is not the blood of his enemies. This is his own blood. His death for his enemies. And his title was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is the Word of God, the Logos, Jesus Christ. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, in his blood, followed him on white horses. From his mouth, and this is so interesting, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. The sword that comes out, it's not from his hand, it doesn't say, it comes out of his mouth. It's his word, his declaration that brings justice to the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press, a symbol of God's judgment. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus comes back and places all things under his feet. And his word, his declaration, is this. And I defeated sin once and for all time by my shed blood. I'm the slain lamb. And you can either... Let me pay for your sins and feast on me at the wedding supper or you can pay for your own sins and in your unrepentant ways you can suffer the God-appointed destiny for those who don't follow me. These are the options. And then he ushers in after this time, after the false prophet and 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 the antichrist are hurled into the lake of fire. There's this thousand-year reign where Jesus reigns on this earth. We call it the millennial kingdom. And no, it's not a kingdom ruled by millennials, right? A bunch of 20-year-old Snapchatting for a thousand years. No. <laughs> this is the millennial kingdom. It's the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And what we do know is there will be believers and unbelievers alike in this time period. And we believe that, that we as believers will be ruling and reigning with Jesus during these thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, after Satan, Satan's been temporarily quarantined, according to this chapter, during this time. And at the end of it, at the end of those thousand years, says when the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be left out, let out of prison. He's going to rally the troops, rally the nations, the rebellious nations, and we're going to have one more go at Jesus. And Jesus goes, sucka, please, fire, done. 
And verse 10, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I joke about it, but this is no joke. And I'm sure this does not give God pleasure, but it is right and it is good. And after this comes what we call the great white throne of judgment. And it says in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, the earth and sky, fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. This is not a day that people are looking forward to if they don't know Jesus. Because at this judgment, it says anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. For those who have not placed their faith in Jesus, this is the outcome. And there's a lot of debate on the where's and the when's and the how's and what's literal and what's symbolic, but the one thing we know is that when Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil and sin once and for all. And he will vindicate his followers. And then what comes, though? There's there's good news for us. There's this new heavens and this new earth. And the last two chapters of our Bible, they they show us what this is going to look like. And it says in Revelation 21, And I saw from a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Now there's some images that we've had planted in our brains since Sunday school of what heaven's going to be like that we need to get out of there. We are not going to be plump little angel babies playing harps, sitting on clouds, singing Chris Tomlin choruses forever and ever and ever. Hopefully, right? What's going to come? We are not these little precious moment angels, right? That's not, that's not what he says. There's going to be, he's going to recreate a new heaven and earth right here where we are. We're going to, it's going to be restored to what God's original intent for mankind was before the fall. Before the fall. And you notice here, with this new heaven and new earth, and, and a couple of things it does mention, there's going to be no more sin. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine life with no selfish thoughts? Where you just put other people before yourself. Where your natural inclination is just to give glory to God. We, we can't even fathom what that will look like for us. We're going to get new bodies, right? These hips will finally be able to move and shake like God originally intended them to. And we're going to get, we're going to get this new creation where the curse has been removed. It's going to be this amazing thing. But that's not what this is all about. That's not what makes heaven, heaven. As Jeff was saying earlier this week, it's not just Disneyland in the sky, right? It's not just that our circumstances are going to finally just be perfect. What makes heaven, heaven is the one that we will be there with. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. That's what makes heaven heaven, is the presence of God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. Why no more sorrow? Why no more pain? Because we're in his presence. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new, raised imperishable. And he also said, it is finished. Does that sound familiar? It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now notice he doesn't just say, I'm going to be there in the end. I am the end. I am the fulfillment of all these things. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious, all who conquer, all who overcome, all who stay faithful witnesses to Jesus will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. And we don't know what we're going to be like, but John says when we see him, we will be like him. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture. And, and one of the things that God gives us is this new city. 
It says in verse 2, we skipped over it, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, if this is a literal kingdom and we have no reason to believe that it wouldn't be, this thing is crazy. He gives the dimensions in Revelation 21. He says it's going to be 1,500 cubic miles. Now, to understand what that means, that's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. Like, are we going to have flying cars? Like, what, how is this? It's like fifth element? Like, what are we going to be doing here? And, and what's amazing to think about, so, so Mount Everest, the tallest point on Earth, is 5.5 miles high. He says this city will be 1,500 feet high. You want to see a scale model? Well, I've got one for you. If you planted it on the United States of America, this is what this new city's dimensions would be like. Again, assuming this is literal, or this is what it would look like if it was planted right where Jerusalem is now. It would just engulf the entire Middle East. This is insane. He says, this is where my people will dwell with me. This is unbelievable. Guys, this is the hope we have to look forward to, this crazy city. I do hope we have flying cars. He says, I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, the temple was where the Shekinah glory, I always got to say it like that, the Shekinah glory would rest. And God said, you can't enter into my holiness because you're sinful, so priests are going to go in before you. But now in the church age, he says, the, the, the presence of God dwells in us as believers through the Holy Spirit. Remember, our portable Jesus. But he says, this day, in this city, my presence is not going to be in a temple. It's going to permeate every square inch of the city. And then he says in verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon. Why? For the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is its light. He says, you don't have a sun anymore. You don't have a moon anymore. Why? Because I am the light. I don't even know what that means or what that looks like, but I can't wait for it to come. And he says, he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. And that's the end. That's how our story ends. And depending on your perspective, this is either the most terrifying thing that could ever happen or the most comforting hope that we could ever be given. So what does this mean for us? John said, if you have this hope, you're purify, you are purifying yourself now. In other words, the look at to what is to come will change the way we live today. So what does that mean? As, as we wait and we watch and we look forward to his, his return. So imagine... If I came up to, to Chuck, and I said, Chuck? What's up, Chuck? <laughs> that was... I said, I, I got something for you. I need you to know. I'm going to leave here for a little while. And I want you to write your name on, my name on your forehead. Okay? And, and when I come back, if your name's on my forehead, I'm going to give you a billion dollars. I'm going to give you a mansion. I make good money as a pastor. <laughs> and everyone... Who does that? Who writes their name on my forehead? Get, they get those good things. And those who don't, I will execute them, right? Not a very nice pastor. I say, do that. Got a Sharpie? Got a Sharpie. See, so he already wants a Sharpie. This is a hypothetical, Chuck. This is hypothetical. So I say, okay, and then I, I'm going to go, and I'm going to come back. I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to come back, but I'll be back. And, and, I, and, I, and I want you, you know, this, this is what I told you. Okay, now, so, so Chuck has a choice to believe what I told him or not to believe him. And if he believes me, he best get to writing, and not only on his own forehead, but to tell every one of you guys that good news. You write your name, you Justin's name on your forehead, and you're going to get a billion dollars in a mansion, and if not, he's going to, you know. So you got to give him this information, right? The hope that he has of my return affects what he's going to be doing in the meantime. 
And it's a bad image that, that falls apart, as all analogies do. But Jesus told us, I'm coming back. And all of those who place their faith in me will have eternal life to live in God's presence in this crazy flying car city with God forever. And those who don't, we saw what their destruction will be. Do we live in light of Jesus' return? I mean, if we believe these words, and that's what, it's, that's what it comes down to for us, do we believe this or not? Because if we believe these words, then we should live with a sense of urgency, a sense of purpose, unlike anybody else on this planet. And we should be telling everyone we know of how this is all going down. This call to the seven churches and the call to us today in Salatna, Alaska, to be victorious, to conquer. And how do we do that? By staying faithful witnesses to Jesus.